0: some of the issues that have come forward as a result of this virus, it's important to know where the problems have been. Early on it is said we didn't have enough tests. Now we have really tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tests being unleashed in order to gather the data. And the data is important to know who's sick, where they're located, and so forth and so on, so you can respond to it. The private sector has acted unbelievably in this regard. We now have tests that you can do at home in 45 minutes. We have all kinds of telemedical activity going on with doctors and others. This is all in the last six to eight weeks. The magnificent American private sector, even though so much of it has been shut down, And despite the the cackling from Pelosi and Schumer and the left and the media demanding that we nationalize industries, as if somebody in the federal government knows how to run an assembly line, can you name one person who's ever run an assembly line, worked on an assembly line, knows how to run a business? No, you can't, other than the president. But it's important to understand we now know a majority of the cases are in New York City. Fifty six to sixty percent of the fifty six percent of the cases, sixty percent of the new cases. You also have people <coughs> excuse me, leaving New York City, heading to places especially like Florida. And the governor there has a new issue because a lot of the people leaving New York City may have this virus and may not know it. So he's asking everybody who's coming from New York City To self-quarantine for 14 days. And let's hope they do so. This is the way you attack this virus. But you're hearing. A constant. uh, Demand plea from the governor of New York, among others, but mostly him. That goes unchallenged. By any New York media. In fact, by any national media. And I've shared my information with some national media. When the governor talks about the lack of ventilators. When the governor talks about the lack of beds. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not new for New York. This is not new for New York. New York has known about the bed situation. And New York has known about the ventilator ventilator situation. Now, to the defense of any state and any governor, you cannot ramp up to effectively, as the president calls it, a wartime health care crisis situation. It's just not possible. What are you going to focus on? Which illness? Which virus? So I understand this. And Governor Cuomo should understand this. Because as the governor of the state of New York, as all the other governors, he had it within his power, any time during his governorship, to order more beds, to order more facilities, to order the expansion of existing hospitals and facilities, including ICU beds. He had it within his power to order more ventilators. And it's not like New York and these other states didn't know about it. So I want to dig into this with you even further. And as I say, I've shared some of this information with some reporters who have all but ignored it. I found a piece, an abstract as they call it, written several years ago, but not forever ago. I believe I believe it was 2008. By then, Dr. and PhD Lewis Rubinson and Michael D. Christian, MD, FRCPC. And the headline is Allocating Medical Ventilators During Mass Respiratory Failure. That's this situation. Kudos to New York State, but more work to be done. Now, I want you to listen to why they're giving them kudos. And by the way, this article is behind a wall, so I'm going to read that portion of it which is in front of the wall. And they write, in this issue of disaster medicine and public health preparedness, Powell et al. summarized the efforts of the New York State Workgroup on the allocation in an influenza pandemic to develop guidance for the allocation of scarce mechanical ventilators during a severe Influenza Pandemic. Now this isn't a severe influenza pandemic, but it's a pandemic, the the Wuhan virus. In the United States, a core societal expectation is nearly limitless provision of critical care to those who want it, who have acute organ failure. Provision of usual critical care for the many additional patients anticipated, During disasters such as a severe influenza pandemic poses an insurmountable challenge for most communities. I want want to underscore a point. I'm not in the panic business. That's not what I do here. I'm not in the panic business. I'm in the realism business. And then I draw my conclusions and give my opinions. Then I draw my conclusions. And we have been extremely prudential and careful here day in and day out no hype as I said before you don't need hype when the situation already involves hype and by that I mean the situation is already really upsetting people and rightly so rightly so but you still need to look at the facts I'll leave the hyper conduct to the media so already you learn I haven't even finished the first paragraph that they believe a severe influenza pandemic poses an insurmountable challenge for most communities. And here we have this Wuhan virus. When efforts to augment critical care are insufficient to meet need, and there's no fair and just system to allocate scarce life-sustaining interventions, then community trust in the broader healthcare delivery system may cease thereby compromising the entire medical and public response. At first glance, it may seem absurd to focus on critical care delivery for an event with such a severe mismatch of patient need and medical resources. Again, this is 2008. Indeed, critical care preparedness and response should not divert so many resources uh, that core public health efforts cannot be accomplished. This is exactly what we've talked about. In other words, you can't ramp up for a pandemic that you're not even familiar with day in and day out. But let's go on, because Governor Cuomo apparently thinks she can, but he didn't do it. At the same time, the plausible widespread transmission of a virulent pathogen, uncertain effectiveness and timely availability of vaccine and anti antimicrobials. And the existing large proportions of the population with comorbidities and social vulnerabilities increase the likelihood of mass critical illness, even in communities with excellent public health services. This is remarkably prescient, 12 years after it's written. Of those critically ill, many who receive critical care may survive. Just as the majority majority of patients survive every day with similar serious syndromes, acute respiratory distress syndrome and severe sepsis, for instance. It is unfortunate that individuals who are unable to access essential critical care services are likely to die. In the United States, intensive care unit ICU beds frequently are a scarce commodity, and published guidance already exists for equitable access. Under usual conditions, all of the patients with clear need for critical care interventions, I'm reading with one eye still, sorry, and considerable likelihood of surviving are admitted to ICUs. ICU triage usually is used to divert patients too healthy or too ill to benefit from critical care. Even with the usual ICU triage, everyday access to critical care is based largely on critical ill patients' desire. Progressive resource needs of other critically ill patients. So you see, we're down to the jungle. Not enough supply, too much demand. Because everyday triage and rationing methods would be insufficient to handle the dramatic mismatches between patient need and available resources. Stick with me. The New York State Workgroup had to develop a new paradigm for allocation of scarce critical care resources. The New York State Work Group, this is 2008, focused on allocation of mechanical ventilators during a severe influenza pandemic. Their process, I'm really struggling reading. I'm sorry, I've got one eye that is legally blind and another eye focused on the screen here. Just stick with me. Their process is intended to be used for any catastrophe, and with patients with respiratory failure, far outnumber critical care capability. Their guidance for allocating mechanical ventilators should not be interpreted as limited solely to the ventilator machines, but more broadly. One must consider all the resources necessary for ventilation, ventilator, ancillary equipment, such as circuits, adequately skilled staff, and so forth. Their guidance rationally can be applied to other key life-sustaining interventions when triaging critically ill patients, for instance, renal replacement therapy for mass crush syndrome after an earthquake. The authors anticipate that most patients with critical illness due to influenza will have respiratory failure. Positive pressure ventilation is the current standard for respiratory failure, and mechanical ventilators are most commonly used for sustained PBF, that is, positive pressure ventilation. Patients with severe acute respiratory failure unable to receive adequate PBF almost assuredly will die. Still, mechanical ventilation is not a guarantee of survival, and some people will die despite access to it. To best use scarce resources, managing medical catastrophes requires deliberate transition from individual-centered to population-focused critical care. You understand? Do you understand what that means, Mr. Bedoser? Rationing. Rationing based on a number... That's the end of the article that's available to me. Rationing based on a number of factors that states and even local hospitals take into consideration age... Underlying illnesses, likelihood of survival, and so forth and so on. New York State, the governor's office, had to be aware of this. Ventilators aren't like thermometers, they're not like band aids. They're life and death for many people. When you're on a ventilator, you've got one foot in the grave and one foot out. You may or may not survive, but that's where the rubber hits the road, may I say. New York State knew over a decade ago that when it comes to a pandemic, it was woefully short of ventilators. So why now is the governor of New York acting like it's the responsibility of the president of the United States? The federal government has and has had an inventory of ventilators for emergency purposes, including the military, hurricanes, whatever. 12,000 I've heard, 20,000 I've heard, 60,000 currently available throughout in use. It was not supposed to be the supplier of ventilators when there's a pandemic. President Trump is trying to fill that void. GM And other companies are now trying to fill that void as fast as they possibly can. When Andrew Cuomo, for some reason is being celebrated, why I don't know. When Andrew Cuomo says today, if we don't have 140,000 ventilators and 40,000 ICU ventilators in two weeks, knowing that's almost virtually impossible, who's going to decide who lives and dies? Where are the reporters? asking him exactly those questions. What is the protocol in the state of New York which is in charge of its hospitals, in charge of its ventilators, in charge of its MRIs and the CTs, in charge of hospital beds, including ICU beds? What is the protocol in New York, Mr. Cuomo, Governor, when you don't have enough ventilators? And how much money during your governorship, have you focused on ventilators as opposed to, say, abortion? I'm just curious. More when I return. I'll be right back. Much in. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue, that having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. This is very, very important stuff. Don't worry, I'm going to jump into what's going on today. But this is going on today. Here's Cuomo today at his press conference. Cut three, go.
2: And our hospital system has about three or 4,000 that has v- always met the need. This is a dramatic increase in the number of ventilators that you need. We have been working around the clock, scouring the globe. We've procured about 7,000 ventilators. We need at a minimum, an additional 30,000 ventilators. You cannot buy them. You cannot find them. Every state is trying to get them. Other countries are trying to get them. The capacity is limited. They're technical pieces of equipment. They're not manufactured in two days or four days or seven days or 10 days. So this is a critical and desperate need for ventilators.
0: Now, I'm not saying that he should anticipate that he needs whatever it is. Now it's 30,000, but I heard other numbers, ventilators. But what does he think the president should have anticipated it? New York knew it was short a lot of ventilators if there's a pandemic. Now there's a pandemic and they're short. Now he's telling us what we already know. It's complicated equipment, it's expensive equipment, and it's not easy to get when you have a pandemic. New York was told this in 2008. I'll be right back. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning, but what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. That having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale dot dot com.
1: The Mark Levin Show is tomorrow's morning show. You can reach Mark now at 877-381-3811.
0: You know, if you're a Federalist and you believe in state authority and because states are supposed to know what's going on in their hospitals, in their hospital rooms, in their medical facilities, in their medical schools, certainly more than a president, that's part of their job, right? You need state certifications to build hospitals. You got all kinds of requirements from the states. Uh, If you graduate from medical school uh, you graduate in a particular state, much like law school, and you can practice in that state, and on and on and on. they basically, almost, not completely, but 90% monopoly control over what goes on in their borders. So what happens when they're not ready for a pandemic, which, in, frankly, in many cases is understandable. But in many cases, it's not. At least be more ready. What happens when states don't prioritize their funding, particularly liberal states? And that could be a state like Maryland with a Republican governor who's liberal, or a state like New York, a Democrat state with a Democrat governor who's liberal. You never heard Andrew Cuomo talking about potential pandemics, about expanding hospital facilities, ICU beds, ventilators in case there's a pandemic. Not until now. You never heard him say a word about it. Abortion, he'll talk about it till he's blue in the face. Climate change, till he's blue in the face. Illegal aliens having citizen rights, till he's blue in the face, and on and on down the left wing agenda. You never heard him talk about any of this, because many of these governors think that they're national drama students and they're part of the left wing agenda. This is part of their job. The president can backfill. The federal government can move as fast as it can. That's exactly what's taking place here. So now they're stuck. And so what happens is, when a state hits a a wall like this, it becomes nationalized. So now we need to nationalize certain industries, nationalize certain assembly lines in order to try and fill the gap that a governor or a state or governors and states failed to handle in the first place. Now, I'm okay with that when it's we're all Americans, okay? The problem is, I don't think this governor's learned his lesson. And the press doesn't hold his feet to the fire. There's not one reporter in New York who has said to this governor, all the years you've been governor, why wasn't this a priority? All the years you were governor, you had this report about an influenza pandemic. This is worse than that, but it's still a pandemic. What did you do about ventilators then? What did you do about beds then and ICUs and hospitals and expansion and so forth? Damn little. More Cuomo today. Cut four, go.
2: There is no other way for us to get these ventilators. Uh, we've tried everything You else. know, this,
0: this is my point. So every, not every, but many states... Many towns, many hospitals, many countries are out and out for the same thing. An extremely complicated and expensive piece of equipment. So you drive up the price, and the availability is very difficult. It's very li- limited. So he has an idea. Go ahead.
2: The only way we can obtain these ventilators is from the federal government. Period. And there's two ways the federal government can do it. One is to use the Federal Defense Production Act. There is a federal law where the federal government can say to manufacturers, you must produce. Now, folks,
0: you understand this law is called the Defense Production Act. They're twisting this law for this pandemic. Nobody will tell you this but me. This law is actually intended in 1950. It's the Stafford Act. Named after a former Republican senator from Vermont. This law was passed in 1950 to address production in the, in the Korean War. This is a law that's intended for war, actual war, not pandemics. Because you're opening up a potential Pandora's box if you had like a Pelosi as president or a Schumer's president or frankly a Biden or a Sanders. They can call whatever they want, a disaster, a war, a pandemic, and they're off to the races. And I worry about these things. I know the media don't. I do. So he's saying this war power should be used to dictate to manufacturers to produce this product. Like that's simple to do. Like that's simple to do. Go ahead.
2: This product. I understand the federal government's point that many companies have come forward and said we want to help and General Motors and Ford and people are willing to get into the ventilator business. It does us no good. If they start to create a ventilator in three weeks or four weeks or five weeks, we're looking at an apex of 14 days. If we don't have the ventilators in 14 days, it does us no good.
0: Let me tell you what he knows. That what's taking place in New York City is at hyperspeed. It's sad. But now New York City is the epicenter of this virus. And he knows that in 14 days, the death toll is going to go up significantly. That's what he knows. And he knows he wasn't prepared. He doesn't have the ventilators. And he doesn't have the beds. And it wasn't his focus before this time. So he wants the president to nationalize a private company or private companies and force them to build f- ventilators But he says we only have 14 days. Ladies and gentlemen. It is extraordinarily difficult. Ask the men and women on the assembly line in Detroit and elsewhere. To go from producing automobiles to producing ventilators. Just to get the parts. Just to get the know-how. In two weeks time. To retool an entire assembly line from one product that has nothing to do with another product, a complicated product, to get the parts, to have the skill, to produce it, to package it, to transport it, in 14 days. This is what the governor of New York is saying. After he just said, That this is a complicated piece of equipment, and you can't build this thing. Let me quote him. They're not manufactured in two days, four days, seven days, or ten days. But he needs them in 14 days. Cuomo has done a grave disservice to the city and state of New York. And he's still doing it, in my opinion. Hopefully, they'll get thousands and thousands of more ventilators. I have a connection and an affinity to the people of New York City. I started my radio career in New York City. I love New York City. The cops, the firefighters, the hardworking people there. In my time slot in New York City, I'm the highest rated show in talk radio. It pains me to see what incompetence have done to this city and this state. It pains me. I just want you to know the truth. You're not going to get it from ProPublica. You're not going to get it from Mediaite. You're not going to get it from Media Matters. Media Matters and ProPublica, both of which have been funded by Soros and other reprobates. You're not going to get it from the New York Times and the Washington Post. In fact, you're not going to get it anywhere but from me. From me. And New York's not the only state where this has taken place. There's now 35 states. One state withdrew from the Certificate of Need laws. When you have states with iron-fisted, heavy, smothering regulations, and they don't have the knowledge or the motivation to conduct themselves in a way that is trying to see what might take place in the future. And you have a report here in 2008 that I just read to you. Where the state is being told you don't have even close to enough ventilators if we have a pandemic. And this governor did, as best as I know, absolutely nothing up to this point to prepare for anything. Whether it's hospital beds, hospitals, hospitals. The expansion of hospital facilities, ventilators, respirators, or all the rest. It's easy to now say, hey, uh, we need more ventilators. I know it takes 10 days to produce them, maybe 14. And if we don't have them in 14 days, all hell's going to break loose here. And if I don't get them, it's the federal government's fault. It's Trump's fault for not nationalizing industries and so forth and so on. That's pretty outrageous. And so the president responded to this in part today. Cut five, go.
3: I watched uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, and he was very nice. We're building them hospitals, we're building them medical centers, and he was complaining about, we're doing probably more, definitely more than anybody else. And uh, he was Mm -hmm. talking about the ventilators, but he should have ordered the ventilators. And he had a choice, he had a chance, because right here, I just got this out, that... He refused to order 15,000 ventilators. I'll show this to Bill, but take a look at that, Bill. What does that say? Is this social distancing here? This says uh, New York Governor Cuomo rejected buying recommended 16,000 ventilators in 2015 for the pandemic, for a pandemic, established death panels and lotteries instead. So... He had a chance to buy in 2015 16,000 ventilators at a very low price, and he turned it down. I'm not blaming him or anything else, but he shouldn't be talking about us. He's supposed to be buying his own ventilators. We're going to help.
0: It's exactly right, and every state's supposed to be doing this. Every state's supposed to be doing this. And if you believe in federalism as I do, then this governor... And the state legislature should be held to account. The mayor should be held to account. Does anybody remember Mayor DiCamio prior to this virus? Demanding more ventilators or ICU beds? No, of course you don't. They're too busy remaking the world, imposing their will on the people. How about Bloomberg? No, no, no. He's too busy dictating 32-ounce drinks. And other ridiculous things. This is what happens when public officials aren't focused where they're supposed to be focused. Now, it can still happen. It can still happen. Because as I said, economically, you can't be on a pandemic level, resource, spending, binge, day in and day out. But New York takes in a crap load of money from the citizens of New York, from the businesses in New York. An enormous amount of money. It spends it on so many frivolous things. This was not a priority. It's not a priority in the state of Virginia. It wasn't a priority in the state of California. Instead, political hot buttons are the priorities. And now they just say, well, the federal government should do it. The federal government should fill in. How can the richest country in the face of the earth not do this? Uh, Just nationalize a few companies, tell them what to produce, we'll produce it and we'll get them out there. And if I don't have them in 14 days, what's the point? Well, what is the point, Governor? What is your point? When we get the beds, he did the same thing. Under the Certificate of Need laws. And not just him. There's now 35 states in the District of Columbia that limit the number of ICU beds and hospital beds and hospitals and hospital expansions. Now, there's economic reasons in part for that, but there's also political reasons in part for that. In the county where I live, they know damn well that the main hospital here couldn't handle, forget about a pandemic, a terrible flu season. But you had two companies come in here a couple years back, both of which wanted to build hospitals, and they chose one over another. Well, you might say that's because of economics. Well, these private companies got to decide on the economics. How does the state know about the economics? So we have hundreds of less hospital beds and ICU beds in my county as riddled decisions by the state of Virginia. And if we have a pandemic here, we won't be prepared either. But the president is exactly right. What they did in New York and what this article was touching on is they set in place how they would ration these machines and who would live and who would die. That's what you've got in New York right now. I'll be right back. Mark in. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. That having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com, levinforhillsdale.com. It's like when the Democrats are trying to remove a president for three years. All the things that could have been done. All the things that could have been done in so many areas. Quality of life for the American people. None of it done. A Bloomberg reporter, Steve Dennis, is tweeting out that one of the remaining snags in the stimulus package in the Senate, Democrats want abortion providers like Planned Parenthood to be eligible for aid under the small business portion of the bill. So they want to fund the virus of abortion, which, as I understand it, by the way, kills babies, not the elderly over 80. The irony is sickening. This is utterly immoral. But they are so obsessed with abortion that apparently that's one of the things that is holding this up. They want Planned Parenthood to be able to borrow money from the small business portion of the, of the bill. Those of you unemployed, those businesses going out of business or shuttered, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats. Oh, they're moderates, don't you know? Since when is abortion moderate? Since ventilators, beds. If they spent as much time talking about ventilators and beds over the last 10 years as they do about abortion, we'd have enough ventilators and beds, wouldn't we, Governor Cuomo? When we come back, I want to talk about this so-called stimulus spending. I'm getting very, very nervous. This thing started out last week at a trillion dollars. Then we heard 1.2 trillion, then 1.8 trillion. Now we're hearing 2 trillion. They stay in there another five hours. It's going to be 2.5 trillion dollars. Now, we don't need 2.5 trillion. We don't need 2 trillion to do what needs to be done here. We'll get into all that. We'll sort it through. I hope you'll stick with me. I'll be right back. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number 877-318-381-3811. Our number's back. Our real number's back. All right. You heard what I said at the close of the first hour, that apparently, according to a Bloomberg reporter, one of the snags right now in getting this $2 trillion bill passed is the demands by the Democrats that Planned Parenthood be eligible to get loans from the Small Business Administration. We are a very sick society. One day, maybe it'll be 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, if mankind still exists, they'll be looking at this society crumbling from within. This isn't a religious issue. This is a moral issue. The sick irony, the sick irony, Of Americans, states, the federal government, moving heaven and earth to save people from this virus, shutting down an economy, putting people out of work, shuttering businesses to save people from a virus. And we're going to have funding to ensure that the abortion mills continue to produce, regardless of the economic situation. And we know for certain that the vast majority of human beings who are aborted die. And we know for certainty that they are babies. Not 80 years old, not over 70 years old. We know this as a matter of fact. And you won't hear a single reporter because this is the American mindset now. The culture has, has been bastardized. Well, how many abortions are we talking about? How many non-medically necessary abortions are we actually talking about? Which is the vast majority. How many are we talking about? Doesn't matter. Just call it a choice, a woman's right, and it's no longer a human being. Forget about it. What if we had a virus that did the same thing as abortion doctors do? Would that upset us? A human being is a human being. Politics aside, these organizations aside, the sick irony, and I'm serious about this, of using this massive bill, To include abortion funding, that is, your tax dollars loaned to Planned Parenthood. You know, Planned Parenthood is not part of the government. You would think it is. Now, this is the second effort by Pelosi and the Democrats. The first was to have you directly fund abortions as part of this bill. Now, it's just to wash it through Planned Parenthood. So a bill that is intended to save not just jobs and businesses but lives will include money, if the Democrats have their way, to kill lives. Oh, it's a choice, but it's still to kill lives. I and mean, Look, I'm not a fundamentalist. This is a, for me, you know what? This isn't even a religious thing for me. It's a moral thing for me. It's a moral thing for me. It's a moral issue for me. I believe I'm a rational human being. I think this stuff through. And unless you're going to be caught up in these uh, these fortune cookie statements. I mean, who's ignoring the science now? Who's denying the science now? Is it a baby or isn't it? Yes, it is. Sick. Absolutely sick. Now, I want to talk about this bill. My friend... Uh, Kudlow and other friends in the administration, some friends on the Hill. He was saying today at the press conference, it's really a $6 trillion infusion of money because with this $500 billion or so, a treasury gets to hold on to. It's not a slush fund. The Democrats are just out of their minds. Ignore everything they say. They're stupid and they're vile. That's right. Just like their media brothers and sisters. They're the same mindset. Some are dressed up as journalists. Some are dressed up as politicians. And some are dressed up as circus clowns. You know. Sorry, my wife likes circus clowns. But anyway. Six trillion. And it'll get liquidity, they say. Liquidity into the system. Well, if you're ordering, if your governors are ordering restaurants to shut down. Bars to shut down. Sports arenas to shut down. If they're ordering a huge percentage of the economy to shut down, exactly where is this liquidity going? Where's it going? This isn't the case where the economy went belly up based on economic decisions, market decisions, cycles, and so forth and so on. That's not this. The virus comes in and the government is shutting down parts of the economy. So you're going to have the government on the one hand shutting down businesses. And then on the other hand, pouring money into businesses. But market will go to individuals and they're going to do exactly what with it, particularly those who are still working. What is the justification, economic or moral, for people who are still working? to be getting $1,200 an adult, $500 a kid, or whatever the number they come up with. What is the justification for that? There is none. That's pure politics, class warfare that the Democrats are pushing, Romney's pushing, others are pushing. You can target assistance the way you target military operations. You can target assistance... The way you target medical operations. And this is what some of us have been talking about. I'm not talking about I want to be utterly clear about this. All of a sudden, every business and every part of the country should open up. Everybody should, you know, get back to wet kisses and all the rest. No, I'm not arguing that. But there are businesses that are being shuttered that don't need to be shuttered. There are parts of the country where businesses are being shuttered Well, those parts of the country don't have an epidemic or a pandemic. We talked about this yesterday, the brilliant Dr. David Katz from Yale. Expert, PhD, MD. Why are you sending college kids home? To their parents and their grandparents. Why are you sending a 21, 22, 23-year college student home? Or 17, 18, I guess. College student home to parents that might be in their 50s, grandparents that might be in their 70s, 80s, 90s, who knows? When you're spreading the virus theoretically, potentially within the family. The thing is, you kind of want all those college students together. You want them to go through the virus, as they say, wash through. And then they develop immunities. And then pretty much in their case, you don't have a lot of worries anymore. At least that's the thinking. Instead of, you know what? We have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know, college students, you all go home. Wait a minute. Why are you doing that? You just sent them all home. Many of them to their parents and their grandparents. And then, after the fact, they say, okay, but if you're in the house with a grandparent, you should treat it like you have the virus. They're in one end of the house, you're in another. How ridiculous is this? Same with the ventilators. Now, putting aside the responsibilities and the failures of the states, let's move on. There's certain... Cities and metro areas and states. Relative handful. They're getting clobbered by this virus. New York City, we know this. L.A., San Francisco, Seattle. Right now, right now, they're the four worst. Miami's starting to pick up. And by the way, just think about the progressive utopia. We're all supposed to live in close quarters together, right? We're all supposed to use public transportation, right? In other words, they're, you're, you're corralling human beings for the sake of preventing climate change. Now, what if we actually had the type of society, the economic society, that the progressives have been pushing? They're moving us in that direction. What if we had the federal government running health care for everybody? The same knuckleheads doing this as do other things. Really, limitations on cars or your use of cars, we're all using public... They'd be shutting down public transportation, and this virus would be picking up even more than it is. One of the reasons it is in New York is because of the density of the city. New York is far more dense than L.A. or Chicago. Talking about population-wise. That is, more people live in smaller areas, more condensed areas than L.A. or Chicago. And so it takes off. And it's taking off. Enormous number of people rely on public transportation. Well, they can't now. And there's a brilliant piece by Michael Walsh in the Daily Wire. He's brilliant to begin with, but a brilliant piece there. And I like it a lot because it kind of sums up what I've been saying for the last seven or eight, nine days as well. Like mine's. And he points out. Why are we doing these things? Broadly, like everybody lives in New York City or L.A. or Seattle or San Francisco when everybody doesn't. Why aren't we concentrating resources? And then economically. I don't know how much more I can talk about this. I've been talking about it now for over a week. Why aren't we doing the same thing? Since when does everybody under 75000 or under 99000 get a $1,200 check and their kids get five hundred, if they're not unemployed? I'll give you an example. This will anger a lot, of, a lot of you in the audience. If you're a public school teacher and you're still getting paid, you still have a pension, you still have health care, if you're still getting paid, and you earn under seventy-five, or whatever the limit becomes, under $99,000, why are we giving you a check? What's the point of that? Here, I'll anger more people. If you're a federal employee, and there are many of them, and you're still getting a paycheck, and you're still getting a pension, and you're still getting health care, why are we paying you an additional sum of money? I don't get it. If there are other people in the private sector. Let's say they're working at Amazon, which is hiring 150,000 more people at $15 a day. But let's say they're earning under 75 or 99, whatever the threshold becomes. Why are we paying them? Mark, to get money into the city. Se- it's not going to matter. They're not going to say, ah, more money, let me spend more. Whatever they typically do with their money, they're going to do with their money. We're going to give money to airlines, right? But nobody's getting on airplanes. So we'll get liquidity into the system. You're not really getting liquidity into the system. You're saving the airlines. By the way, if we're going to shut down industries, then the government does, we, do have a responsibility to help them. But we got to help them in a smart way. The airlines aren't going to get back in the air under the conditions we're setting. The restaurants aren't going to open under the conditions we're setting. And what they need, what they need is to be able to pay their bills. That's what they need, the ability to pay their bills. And if they're going to be shut down by order of the government, and by the way, if they're going to be shut down by order of the state government, don't the state governments have any responsibility here? I can understand the Fed's helping. Don't get me wrong. And the smart way is these long-term no-interest loans. And not to everybody. If somebody had a business that wasn't that wasn't likely to survive anyway, that's a whole other story. But... This is what happens when they rush this legislation through and they're talking about now $2 trillion tonight. $2 trillion. Now, we've done this before, not on this scale. $850 billion, which was the most massive spending, it was under Obama, his so-called stimulus, where 15% actually got to where it was supposed to go. The president had the right idea. Freeze payroll deductions for those who are working. It also freezes it for employers. So at least those people who are working aren't going to lose their jobs. Hold on to them as long as you can. So you're not creating a bigger problem than you have. You can push more money through unemployment compensation. That system already exists. The infrastructure is already in place to facilitate the payments. You can do that. And then you're hitting people who are truly unemployed. Not everybody. Truly unemployed. And then industry or business specific. Industry and business specific. Not all businesses and not all industries. I'll be right back. Mark
1: Lovin.
0: Another thing Walsh said, I'm doing this by memory in his piece at the Daily. Wire, excellent sight. Other thing he said is it's uh, mostly people who have jobs who are saying, you know, don't pick the economy over health. Now Cuomo says the same thing. Don't pick the economy over health. Ladies and gentlemen, who's picking the economy over health? If we don't have a vibrant economy, people lose their jobs, 20, 25, 30 percent unemployment, businesses shutter, we're going to have a lot more to deal with than a virus. The health consequences will be unimaginable. And how do you think the people with a virus or cancer or a heart disease or whatever the ailment is, how do you think they're going to be treated with 20, 30 percent unemployment when the bottom falls out? What, they're going to meet in Congress again and spend, what, $17 trillion and make sure that abortion is right there at the top of the list? That'll fix everything. This is what destroys countries, destroys societies, turns a civil society into the rule of the jungle. This is what many of you have feared for years. And a country can go in that direction. Now, I'm sorry. I may be in the minority, but there's no way in hell I would vote for any bill that's $2 trillion on top of a $4.5 trillion budget. I don't give a damn what's in the bill. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? That's irresponsible. But I do agree that major elements of the economy must be opened up. The president is clearly looking at that. He wants to focus health care... Resources where they should be focused on the populations and parts of the country, and he wants to open up other parts of the country for business. That is exactly what needs to be done. I'll be right back.
3: You're listening to Denali. The great one. The great one. And you can call in now. 877 381 3811.
0: You know, hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, and there's many, many people looking for work now. But today, hiring can be easy. You have to go to one place to get it done ziprecruiter.com slash Levin. L E V I N. Because ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. You need ZipRecruiter now more than ever. Now more than ever. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, you, my listeners, can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. Uh, ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. It's the smartest way to hire. I hope you know by now, those of you who have voted for so-called moderate Democrats, that there's no such thing anymore. I hope you know that. Mike Shrill, and he is, is a Democrat in New Jersey. And he was in a town hall meeting in February. And I want you to listen to him admitting why they blocked legislation related to the President of the United States. Hat tip, Washington free beacon, cut nine, go.
4: It's shockingly a different mindset. So when I go, you know, I've gone up to people and said, um, I need to get this piece of legislation passed. And they say, Oh, yeah, we're, we just passed it. I said, Yeah, we just passed it. I need the Senate to pass it, and I need the president to sign it. And they said, Well, we don't want to the president
0: a win. Sorry, it's Mikey. It's a female, I think. Are we allowed to say female anymore? Or we have to say it. Well, we don't want to give the president a win, you see. Now, there's a drug out there. You've heard it. You heard me talk about it first on this program early last week. Chloroquine. A couple of forms of chloroquine. It's been around a long time. It's used for malaria as well as other diseases. Um, It's cheap price-wise, because it's been out there a long time. You can get it in generic. Uh, And it's easy to produce. There's more and more companies that are willing to produce it and are producing it. Israel, they have a small company that produced 6 million pills and gave them to the United States. So I thought immediately, Mr. Producer, well, how many are the Palestinians going to produce and give to the United States? Anyway, that's a whole different issue. Just a footnote. So in the last several days the governor of New York, <clears throat> Cuomo has announced that they have ordered a huge amount of this chloroquine, chloroquine, excuse me, to give to the people of New York, which is absolutely responsible. He's not interested in doing a new trial on the drug to see if it works in order to help sick people from this coronavirus. Get better, he's interested in using it because they don't have anything else. And since the downside of using it is so de minimis, where really, really sick people are facing potential death, or they don't want to be really, really sick, why not? Let the doctors and the and the individuals decide. And Cuomo's right to do this, in my view. There have been doctors who say they've used it. It's unbelievable. There's a doctor in France who used it 350 times and it worked 350 times. And what you're going to hear from the medical scientists is that's not a trial. We don't have dummy pills. We haven't done this. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. But it's a pandemic. You're forcing people into their homes. You're shutting businesses. You're putting people out of work if this is a pill that has limited side effects, and of course you should only get it from a doctor who prescribes it, then what's the problem? And by the way, if people have a problem with it, then they don't have to take it. So Cuomo is acquiring 70,000 doses of hydrochloroquine, 20,000 doses of Zithromax, Uh, And 750,000 doses of just chloroquine. And uh, they're going to use it as a potential treatment. Now, if you have a problem with that, then you don't have to take it. I don't have a problem with that at all. And as a matter of fact, again, with doctor's orders. I would consider giving it to... The people who are more susceptible to morbidity or even yeah, mortality as a result of this virus, if their doctors think it's appropriate, that's how you deal with it. You don't give it to everyone. And that's one of the things Dr. Katz and others have been talking about. Focus, 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 attack the virus. Don't run thin on your resources because the, the virus will get worse. You know, when I interviewed Dr. Fauci on the Sunday program, I said to him after he explained how it works, the virus and so on, I said, well, this is a virus of opportunity. It looks for opportunity. If you're relatively healthy before you get it, you'll be relatively healthy after you go through it. But if you're unhealthy... If your immune system is weak, if you're elderly, uh, that is really uh, its its target. And I, he said almost begrudgingly, he said, "Yes, that's right." <clears throat> so it's really a virus of opportunity, I think, in terms of morbidity and mortality. Now. The president points out today, and he's right. So here's Cuomo. He's ordering hundreds of thousands of doses of this stuff. And here's the president saying this drug, hydrochloroquine, or just chloroquine, that this drug and the hybrid of the drug is very, very, very promising. And the president has been trashed by the media. By the so-called experts. Not all of them, some of them. And do your own experts believe in this? And what about this? And there hasn't been a trial and there hasn't been that. Again, these are people who don't have the disease, or the virus, I should say, and aren't suffering from it in any significant way. These are people who have jobs, so aren't so much worried about the economy, as people who have lost their jobs. So Cuomo is praised My God, what a leader. We've never seen anything like this. Matter of fact, at the Democrat convention, maybe they'll replace Biden with Cuomo. We've never seen somebody. What a magnificent leader. He's attacking the federal government. He doesn't have ventilators. He's attacking the federal government. He doesn't have beds. He's using hydrochloroquine. We've never seen a leader like this. No, we've seen a better leader. His name is Donald Trump. So can the media explain why they trashed the President of the United States who's brought up this particular drug a few times and they're celebrating Cuomo for doing what he's doing? Can the, can the media explain that? No, the media cannot explain that. I can explain it. You can explain it too. Crazy bastards. There's also this effort to try, as they might, to have Dr. Anthony Fauci... Attack the president of the United States. It's really a very vicious and evil effort by the media. They just want him to attack the president. as not following the science. Because, you know, they want the president to be viewed as a rube. And if there's deaths, it's on the president's hands, not on the governor's hands, not on the virus's hands. Certainly not on China's hands because that would be xenophobic, whatever the hell that means. And everybody's saying, oh, there was a wonderful interview of Dr. Fauci, and he said this, and he said that. I will give you the most important interview up until now of Dr. Fauci, mine, on Sunday. I specifically inquired into these areas about the task force and whether the president follows the science. Cut 22, go. Go. Mr. Producer, are you awake? Cut 22 is not coming up? Can you speak to me? Okay, helps if you speak to me since millions of people are listening to me, okay? How about Cut 23? Is that not coming out either? All right, folks, I don't know what's going on, but our audio doesn't work. He doesn't know. So I'll read it to you. I said I'll read it to you. Let me ask you a question. You've been doing this a long time. Have you ever seen this big of a coordinated response by an administration to such a threat, a health threat? Here's what Fauci says. We've never had a threat like this. And the coordinated response has been there are a number of adjectives that we can describe it. Impressive, I think, is one of them. Impressive. We're talking about all hands on deck. I, as one of many people on the team, I'm not the only person. Since the beginning that we even recognized what this was, I have been devoting almost full time on this. Almost full time. I'm down at the White House virtually every day with the task force. I'm connected by phone throughout the day and into the night. When I say night, I'm talking about 12, 1, 2 in the morning. I'm not the only one. There's a whole group of us who are doing that. It's every single day. So I can't imagine that under any circumstances, anybody could be doing more. The media completely ignore this. Then I had a follow-up question. There's this statement put out, some in the press, some of the opposition party, the president, that the president doesn't follow the science. Is the president following the science? Fauci. Every single time, and by that I mean almost every day, it's not like once a month. We're in the task force meeting. There's several of us, myself included. I'm not the only one that's a scientist or a public health person. There are other people who have other responsibilities. So we get a good sampling of expertise that you need. And it's led by the Vice President, Secretary Azar is there, Secretary of HHS, and we talk about every aspect. We make all of our decisions and recommendations that are based on the science. I have never in that room had a situation where I said, scientifically, this is the right thing to do, and they don't do it. Or scientifically, this is the wrong thing to do, and they did it anyway. Then we get up and we present it to the President, and he asks a lot of questions, that's his nature. He's constantly asking you questions. And I never, in the multiple times that I've done that, where I said, for scientific reasons, we should really do this, that he hasn't said, let's do it, or when he's decided, not decided, when he suggests, why don't we do this? And I say, no, that really is not a good idea from a scientific standpoint. He has never overruled me. This has been put to bed now. Now, I have to say, unlike Dr. Fauci, who is really, I'm very impressed with the man. Some conservatives, I don't know, is he a liberal? I'm very impressed with the man. But he's not looking at the full horizon of events. He's looking at his expertise. The President of the United States has to look at everything. If we have a dissolution of the civil society, that's a problem. That's not Fauci's job. That's not any of the medical experts' job. If we have massive unemployment that affects our ability to even run a third-class healthcare system, that has to concern a president of the United States. If we have such massive unemployment and we have other consequences, violence, massive depression, suicide, other things that fill up our hospital rooms and so forth, that's something the president of the United States has to decide. He's not elected to be a robot who simply takes in what this doctor or that doctor says and then marches along it's his job to make the tough decisions, which is exactly what he's doing. But the media constantly, constantly trying to, to have these men at each other's throats really is, is, is so disgraceful, so appalling. I, I really don't believe these people in the media understand how much they are hated and hated for good reason. Not because the president calls them the enemy of the people, but because they act like the enemy of the people. I'll be right back much
1: love in
0: man oh man where does this program go where does this program go mr producer I should be doing you know like that uh what was that guy's name? You know, I shouldn't start a sense if I can't remember somebody's name. Remember the hostages? Who was that, that guy that got famous doing that? I forget his name. The whole country's telling me his name. Day 412. Day 413. I should be doing a five-hour radio show every day. Not at program directors, I'm not. But I should. That's how much... This stuff needs to be discussed in an extensive way. Unraveling some stuff, taking on some stuff. I told Mr. Call Screener, who is a budding radio star, by the way. Richie Valdez is terrific. And I told him something to remember that most hosts probably don't. You need to make it worth the while of that person out there listening to you to tune you in. You must make it worth his or her while. See, I don't see each of you as a whole bunch of people. In my mind's eye, I see you sitting across the table from me. And I'm explaining things from my perspective. That's how I see it. I see you as a member of my extended family. You're coming in here to listen to me every evening. Do you know how blessed I am to have you here and how blessed I am to have this format? So I don't blow it by filling time. If I play music, it's because I'm in the mood to listen to music. And I figure every now and then you want to listen to music too. If I want to hit sports now and then, although rarely, I figure, you know, now and then you need this thing to be broken up. But I also figure when I come across something about beds, which is an issue, ventilators, which is an issue, and all the rest of it, that you want to hear about it, that it's worth your time to be here. And we have great sponsors like the Media Research Center. The Media Research Center has been leading the war against dishonest news for over 30 years because the American people deserve the truth. And that's why the work of the MRC and their video team at MRC TV, and they are great, is so important. They expose the media's lies and make sure you see the videos the liberal media don't want you to see. You can learn a whole lot more. Go to mrclevin.org, mrclevin.org MRC produces original commentary and videos of the news, people, and events that we Americans, patriots, conservatives care about. And one of the recent videos exposed the media's dishonesty on the Wuhan coronavirus. They put together clips of the media calling it the Chinese Wuhan virus. Remember that? Everybody was using it? Well, MRC put it together. MRC TV and now of course it's racist no one is faster to expose media hypocrisy and living color than MRC TV MRC TV and the rest of the MRC team exist to expose the media's dishonesty and make sure the American people get the truth, that's why we call them America's media watchdog there's one of only a handful of conservative groups that have a real impact every day in the fight to save our country MRC's at the top of the list Go to MRClevin.org. That's M-R-C-L-E-V-I-N.org. We have a powerful third hour. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to TV and watch hysterical people and consultants and stick with me. Stick with me. I'll be right back.
3: From the Westwood One Podcast Network.
1: Now broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello America, I'm Mark
0: Levin, our
1: number 877-381-3811, 381
0: 3811 I want to tell you a little story. Maybe it's not so little, maybe it's longer, but I think you're going to want to hear it. Uh, This is in pabook.libraries.psu.edu. That's Penn State University. Philadelphia Under Siege, The Yellow Fever of 1793 by Samuel A. Gunn. The summer was the hottest in years. The humidity was hardly bearable. The muddy swamps of Philadelphia spawned round after round of mosquitoes which relentlessly assaulted their human blood meals. An eerie chill bestowed the empty streets of Philadelphia as the only sound heard is the carriages making their rounds to pick up the dead. It was the summer of 1793 and a ghastly epidemic of yellow fever gripped the largest city of America and then the nation's capital. Samuel Breck a newly arrived merchant to philadelphia and later instructor to the blind observed quote the horrors of the memori- of the memorable affliction were extinctive and heartrending extensive and heartrending samuel breck estimated that the number of deaths in 1793 by yellow fever was more than 4000 modern scholars estimate the number to be close to 5000 a tenth of the city's 50000 Residents, ten percent. Thomas, uh, however, twenty thousand people, including Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and much of the federal government, had fled the city to escape the fever, thereby making proportion of deaths among those who remained quite high. What could cause a devastating epidemic to occur on Pennsylvania soil? Yellow fever is an acute, infectious hemorrhagic, that is, bleeding, viral disease transmitted by the bite of a female mosquito native to tropical and subtropical regions of South America and Africa. But it wasn't discovered that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes until 1881. At the time, yellow fever was a well-known illness that affected sailors who traveled to the Caribbean and Africa, characterized by by disquieting color changes, including yellow eyes and skin purple blotches under the skin from internal bleeding and hemorrhages, and black stools and vomit, all of which were accompanied by a high fever. In 1793, people of the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Dominique, now Haiti, were fleeing a revolution from France, and thousands of infected individuals landed at the Philadelphia docks. This, combined with the city, hot, summer, low-water tables of 1793, created the perfect breeding grounds for mosquitoes and the spread of yellow fever. On August 19, 1793, the first fatality of yellow fever, Peter Aston, became a topic of general conversation according to Matthew Carey, Irish-born American publisher and first-hand witness to the beginning of the plague. I wonder how many hospital beds they had, Mr. Producer, or how many ventilators. At first, many residents believed it was simply a common autumn illness. Prominent doctor at the time, Benjamin Rush. You may have heard of him. He was a founder. Quietly identified the illness as yellow fever. Ah, crap. Hold on. The damn thing changed on me. Hold on. I'm reading the best I can. What happened here? I'm reading this off my iPhone. Stick with me. Alright. I'll find it. I'll find it. Yellow. Okay. Uh, let's see... I'm finding it. Everybody sing along. Damn it. The prominent doctor of the time, Benjamin Rush, quickly identified the illness as yellow fever. By August 25, universal terror, as described by Kerry began spreading like wildfire through Philadelphia. Many fled the city. There's so great a terror that carts, wagons, chairs, and coaches could be constantly seen leaving the city over the next few weeks. Those left behind sought refuge indoors. Congress was adjourned moved to the then-remote village of Germantown. Streets became empty as business halted. 1900, Lillian Rhodes, author of The Story of Philadelphia, commented that the hearse and the doctor's carriage were the sole vehicles on the street. She also stated that hospitals were in a horrible condition. Nurses could, nurses could not be had at any price. To go into a house in which nearly every bed contained a dead body, and the floors reeked with filth, was courting death in its most dreadful form, quote-unquote. In the history of Philadelphia, no city has ever faced its own mortality to the extent that Philadelphia suffered under the yellow fever affliction. The spread of yellow fever to Philadelphia resulted in panic and fear of death. And the number of deaths changed from 10 victims a day in August to 100 a day in October, and sudden exit was of common occurrence, as depicted by Samuel Breck. He also noticed that people were in health one day were buried the next. The city was almost completely unprepared for such a catastrophe. No hospitals or hospital stores were in readiness to alleviate the sufferings of the poor, as mentioned by Breck. Hope became dismal. Rhodes also commented on the atmosphere of Philadelphia as deserted and desolate. Yet during such a tragedy, there was also an intense struggle for a cure and containment. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, became the leader of the fight against yellow fever. Though urged to flee the city like others, Rush said, I have resolved to stick to my principles, my practice, and my patience to the last extremity. Dr. Rush gave the people of Philadelphia courage and hope. Fear engulfed the city of Philadelphia, while many resorted to prayer and appealed to the divine. Dr. Rush believed that yellow fever was caused by unsanitary conditions, especially those of the docks, sewage system, and rotting vegetables, such as rotting coffee from the Arch Street Wharf. Boy, was he right. He concluded that the illness was not transmitted from human to human, but by putrid exhalations in the atmosphere. Exhalations in the atmosphere. He also recognized that weather played a part in the epidemic, that the infection did not spread from human to human contact, though many people at the time wanted to point blame, at the newly arrived St. Dominique Re- uh, Revolution refugees. Rush was a- adamant to not point the blame to outsiders, but instead accused the sanitary conditions of the city and implored residents to clean up the city so as not to entrail the disease upon future generations. Rush believed the epidemic could be prevented by cleaning the docks, pumping out the bilge water of the of ship, water that collects and stagnates in the bilge of a ship, cleaning sewers, sewers more often, washing the streets in warm water, removing filth from home better, employing toilets more often, stopping buildings so close in alleys and eating less meat in the summer. In regards to disease, Rush had said, to every natural evil, heaven has provided an antidote. African Americans played a vital role in the epidemic of 1793. Rush pleaded for help, for the help of Philadelphia's free black community, believing that African Americans were immune to the disease. African Americans worked tirelessly with the sick and dying as nurses, cart drivers, coffin makers, and grave diggers. Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, religious leaders who would later go on to found the first black churches of Philadelphia, African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas and African Methodist Episcopal Church, respectively, described their experience as volunteers in 1793, quote, at this time the dread that prevailed over people's minds was so general that it was a rare instance to see one neighbor visit another, and even friends when they met in the streets were afraid of each other, much less would they admit into their houses. This was not the only horror, that Absalon Jones and Richard Allen observed. They observed horrendous behavior from the fearful citizens of Philadelphia. Many white people have acted in a manner that would make humanity shudder, they said, despite Dr. Rush's theory, 240 African Americans died of yellow fever. Now, the unwilling victims of yellow fever were not just the infected. Children often suffered from a mild case of yellow fever while adults severely suffered. The number of orphans increased as parents became casualties of the fever. Jones and Allen observed, quote, A woman died. We were sent to bury her. On our going into the house and taking the coffin in, a dear little innocent accosted us with, Mama is asleep. Don't wake her. But when she saw us put her in the coffin, the distress of the child was so great that it almost overcame us. When she demanded why put her mama in the box, we didn't know how to answer but committed her to the care of a neighbor and left her with heavy hearts. However, as a result, many orphanages were created to meet the growing needs. Benjamin Rush did find his own treatment for yellow fever by October. By blood leaching and purging patients, Dr. Rush decreased mortality. In some cases, he would remove a very high proportion of blood from the body. He often gave calomel, a mercury compound, as a method to purge the bowels. There were several doctors and public figures, such as journalist William Cobbett who attacked his, that is, Rush's, medical practice. Cobbett was the primary political enemy of Rush, going so far as to calling him a quack, a murder, a mentally unstable, according to Jim Murphy, author of The American Plague. Later in 1800, Rush would sue Cobell for libel for the amount of $5,000, after which Cobell fled the country in disgrace. Though there is no true cure and a vaccine was not developed until 1937, Dr. Rush's avid conviction to his personal cure gave his patients strength and hope. Estimated that Rush, his medical treatment saved over 6,000 people with his dedication and perseverance to find a treatment. At one point, Dr. Rush himself fell ill of yellow fever and with his own treatment administered by one of his assistants, he became healthy despite a persistent cough. Lillian Rhodes comments on opinion of Rush after the outbreak. She writes, Dr. Benjamin Russ, whose heroism during the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia during 1793 endeared him even to his political enemy. Now, frosts mid to late October, which froze over the stagnant pools of water where mosquitoes breed greatly, decreased the incidence of yellow fever infections. By November, the horrific epidemic was over and residents finally returned to their homes and lives. Those who stayed, such as Dr. Rush or Absalom Jones, to fight the yellow fever were glorified heroes. Circuit Judge William Bradford, after hearing of Rush's deeds, wrote, he has become the darling of the common people and his humane fortitude and exertions will render him deservedly dear. The only conflict, that remained was the cause of the yellow fever plague and whether it was from the filth of the city, as Rush believed, or the opinions of others who argued that the seeds of the disease came from the West Indies, as stated by modern author Arbor, uh, Bob Arnebeck. Soon after, the governor of Pennsylvania, Thomas Mifflin, embraced both ideas, called for greater civic cleanliness and stricter quarantines and inspection of incoming vessels. The yellow fever epidemic of 1793, forever changed Philadelphia. Though the initial impact was gloom and dread, great adaptions were made by the people of Philadelphia. Hospitals, isolation hospitals, and orphanages were built. Political leaners learned the importance of nursing care from the epidemics and attempted to provide it more carefully. Aggressive attempts were made to improve the city's sanitary conditions. Laws came into existence for homeowners to hold responsibility for cleaning up their property, And Murphy stated the governor, these cleanliness laws were rather weak and generally ignored by all. However, during the 19th century, these laws would eventually be enforced. A great improvement was made in Philadelphia's water supply following the outbreak. Waste from privy pits, byproducts of manufacturing and trash of markets seeped into private and public wells used for drinking and cooking, which resulted in what Jim Murphy describes as evil-smelling and evil-tasting water. The citizens of Philadelphia believed that foul-smelling water could be the cause of health problems. In 1799, Benjamin Latrobe, father of American architecture, was hired to design and construct Philadelphia's first waterworks, and the first water system in the United States. His waterworks design removed water from the Schuylkill River by a steam engine pump, which pumped the water to a central pump house. The central pump house, located at the large central square at Broad and High Streets, used an Another steam engine uh, pumped to lift the water into the huge wood reservoirs, which used gravity to carry the water to houses and businesses around the city. Latrobe later went on to design current capital of the United States, Washington, D.C.'s water system. Ironically, he died of yellow fever while constructing the waterworks of New Orleans in 1820. One of the immediate changes to Philadelphia was the dispersal of residents who lived on the water side of the Philadelphia. Merchants, then living on water or Front Street, moved to reside in western outskirts of Philadelphia. The population movement changed the growth of Philadelphia away from the waterfront. Rush had an enormous impact on the growth of medicine and medical care, but at the time, many other physicians, the College of Physicians, disagreed with Rush's belief of the cause. So he resigned from the College of Physicians as he viewed flawed medical logic and professional jealousy from his peers, as stated by Jim Murphy, the American award-winning author. Though the cause of yellow fever would not be known for another century, Rush was criticized for his belief that illness was not imported. Turns out he was right. Yellow fever tore through the city like wildfire, causing death of one-sixth of the population remaining, though many tried to flee the city. The effects of such a devastating epidemic could not be avoided. Out of the death and decay, several of history's greatest doctors, such as Benjamin Russ, became combatants against the plague and consequently advanced medicine. And the growth of Philadelphia and the history of Pennsylvania were forever altered by this tragedy, which was endured by the residents of Philadelphia. little bit of history, a little bit of context. I'll be right back. Love in. These idiotic black-and-white scenarios being presented to you. That either we shut things down and shut more things down and spend four trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, or you favor people being dead, is so outrageously stupid and sickening. When I presented to you, and I could present to you more, brilliant points by brilliant men and women, health experts, medical experts who tell us that this sort of thing can be treated in a very focused way. The president has attacked this. He's attacked it as aggressively as any president, any human possibly could with all the tools and weapons that were available to him. And he's now making tools and weapons to attack it. And now he's seeing we have more data, we have more information, It's a virus we we don't understand, but we understand better. We know who it attacks. We know where it's attacking. We've got more tests now that the CDC has ramped up thanks to the private sector. And so to ignore that information and to keep going and acting based on information you had six weeks ago is absurd. And that's what the president's saying. He's saying, look. I can't allow this economy to collapse. Imagine the health consequences of that. Imagine this, he doesn't say it, I'll say it. Imagine the civil disturbance. It'll change our our constitutional republic forever. He's not going to get that advice from his medical experts, from his healthcare experts. That's something he's taking into consideration as the president of the United States. New York's never going to have all the ventilators it needs. Not in time. They're never going to have all the beds they need. Not in time. I mean, Governor, where were you? Plus, how do you build up to a pandemic each and every day? Anyway, I'll be right back.
1: Mark in the voice the liberals want to silence. But you can talk to
0: Mike at 877 381 We're going to take some calls. We haven't taken calls really in two days. Some of you have been waiting. Oh, my Lord. I apologize. Some of you have been waiting over an hour and a half. We're going to get to your calls. Let's start with the people who have been waiting the longest. Dean, Great Lakes, Illinois, XM Satellite, Go. You're on, sir. Go right ahead, Dean. This is Dan. Well, Dan, anyway, Dean. Thank, yes, sir. Thank you, Mark.
5: I appreciate it. Um, I have a simple, flexible, targeted, and inexpensive financial relief plan for anybody or any business affected by coronavirus. What what Congress is doing here is insane, Mark. We don't have two trillion dollars. No, no,
0: no. You don't even understand. It's not just two trillion. Larry Kudlow's out there bragging that it's really six trillion. I'm going. What? What?
5: I hope unbelievable I what? hope somebody's listening if if I hope somebody's from the president's office is listening
0: they are if you agree with me here,
5: I hope you'll get me in touch with somebody I'm going to explain this real
0: No, I'm not going to get you in touch with anybody. It would be nice if you got to your point though
5: I will basically, all we need to do is suspend regular payments that people or businesses need to make rent, loan, mortgages, student loans credit cards and
0: what happens to all those creditors they can borrow the money from the Fed. All right, this is insane. No, that's not how it works because sometimes little people are landlords. So that's insane. Thank you for your call. Suspend all payments. And where does the president have that power? Can anybody show me even any statute where the president has that power? Can you imagine the economic dislocation that would create? Whew. Let's keep going. Poor fellow waited an hour. It waited 110 minutes on that. I'm sorry. Landon, Marshall, Texas, the great KTBB. Go. Go right ahead, sir. You're on the air. Landon.
5: Hey, hey, Mark. Good to, uh, good to talk to you. I've been listening to you for, for years. I'm 35 years old. Yes, Two sir. Two weeks ago, I put a Facebook post out, uh, and, and my post was, should we destroy 100% of our economy? for 1% of the population, or should that 1% of the population take personal responsibility and isolate themselves until a vaccine can come out? And if they are willing to go out and expose themselves, that's what freedom's about. And I had a lot of pushback from uh, friends of mine saying, well, no, it's our responsibility to keep them from getting it. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. People in the United States have peanut allergies. Do we shut the economy down for peanut allergies? I know it's smaller percent of the population well this is a little different
0: this is a little different this is you're not consuming anything you can touch something because this stuff lasts for three days just function as you normally would not even knowing what's taking place and get it so the analogy isn't correct and you're the reason you probably got pushback is because the argument's a little harsh i would put it a little differently we can protect these people by enforcing quarantines, by enforcing protection of the people who are at risk. That we can do. We can also ensure that much of the medical, uh, medical resources that are available are focused on these people, on these communities where the outbreak is at Turkey, uh, where is, uh, is, is taking place. And the president, I think, has handled this almost flawlessly up till now. And what he needs to do now is, as they say, pivot and start. And he is. He's talking about opening up parts of the economy that are not affected. And I think, for instance, many of these universities and colleges made a huge mistake. Now they have the data. They should call their students back. Now they have the data. They should call their students back, get them out of the general community get them out of their homes where their parents and grandparents are and are more vulnerable. There's a lot of things we can do that we're not hearing from the professional health care and medical experts that a president has to do now.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree with the president said it today, and and I just heard you say it.
0: And he's under attack for it. Actually, I've been saying it, to be honest, since the beginning of last week. As the date is coming in, okay, now we know who's vulnerable, pretty much not with perfection, you're never going to get that. And the more tests we get, the more it seems to underscore these points, that the vast majority of the American people are not vulnerable, that the overwhelming majority of young people are not vulnerable, and that people who are elderly are vulnerable, not all of them, but a big enough percentage of people with weak immune systems um, uh, are vulnerable. And now we have this drug, and I don't understand why the media fights this. When the governor of, of New York says he's going to use it, You know, they have a ticker tape parade for the guy, essentially. When Trump talks about it, this this particular malaria drug, it's like, well, you don't know the science, and you don't know this, and you don't know that. The president is not a bureaucrat. And the downside is minimal compared to the upside. And so he's making very rational points, I think. All right, Landon, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you very much, your call. Joel, Green Bay, Wisconsin, on the Mark Levin app. Go! You're on, Joel. Go right ahead. Hey,
5: Mark. Great one. Great to talk to you. You're our substitute uh,
0: teacher here
5: in the household when the kids are No, no, no. That's
0: Brother Rush. But anyway, go right ahead.
5: Well, we we love listening to your your law and constitution, economics, most of all, common sense. Mark, what what the heck? You know, one million, two trillion. I mean, one trillion, two trillion, six trillion. Where's that? I mean, where, where is where is one Republican saying what you're saying? I know they can't say it as well as you're saying it, but we have programs for all this all this stuff. All these. You know the 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 nets to help people. You know what's ha-
0: what's 20. happening is they're bidding each other up. Uh, they want to deal as desperately as possible. They want to push money into the economy. They're going to push a lot of money into the wrong places. This debt is going to really overload your children and grandchildren one day. I've never seen anything like this ever. Um, I'm surprised at Cudlow. I'm not surprised at Mnuchin. Uh, but but there ought to be some kind of cap on this. You go from a trillion to 1.2 to 1.8 to two trillion in 72 hours, and then they're bragging that it's really six trillion because a half a trillion dollar fund that the Treasury has can be used, therefore or thereby, the uh, the Fed to take additional money and push additional money into the uh, into the system. Uh, I don't think most people listening to me right now are going to benefit from most of this. I really don't. And then on top of that, you have the Democrats saying it's not enough money. And then they have all their wackadoodle fascistic socialist agenda items to impose on all the rest of us in the private sector to ensure we never recover from this. They want this to be the new FDR, New Deal period where they where they fundamentally alter our nation and our private sector, even beyond what you see today.
5: Exactly. So when Pelosi, Pelosi wants all this garbage, Republicans say, well, we won. You know, Pelosi wants 100 times hundred times garbage and we give her fifty times garbage we're still getting garbage like where does it end no you know I hope, I hope the president slaps her down on it and says this is crazy you know this well dollar- right,
0: now, right now it's the Republicans of the Senate they keep talking about we're on the two yard line we're almost there we'll be voting on this soon but <coughs> excuse me a Bloomberg reporter says one of the holdups is uh, that the Democrats want the small business loans to be able to go to Planned Parenthood so the irony is we're pushing and fighting this virus, looking for beds and ventilators to save people. Well, the Democrats want to kill people. It's really an amazing thing.
5: We're fighting two viruses, the coronavirus and a Democratic Party virus.
0: Well, I mean, the abortion yeah. virus, for sure. We're not even talking about medical abortion. Just call it a choice, and you're fine. It's over. You don't have to think about the morality of it. All right, my friend. I appreciate it very, very much. Kara, Dallas, Texas, the great WBAP. Go. Hi, Mr. Levin, thank you for your show. The amount of work you
4: put into it, I can't even imagine. But um,
0: My pleasure, to thank make you.
4: Mention- yeah, thank you. I just want to make mention to what you were discussing the first hour about Cuomo and New York's preparation in their resources. I, was, I am a physician and I was in training in the tri-state area uh, when Obamacare passed. And after that, all the hospitals just kind of enlarged and conglomerated. And what they wind up doing was really eliminating a lot of these smaller hospitals that had ICU beds, that had resources. And there was an elimination of a lot of these smaller hospitals. One we can mention is just St. Vincent's, which everybody knew and loved. So you start looking at some of the changes that the law, um, the the unexpected consequences that this law had. It actually eliminated resources for patient, for people and patients in New York City, Manhattan, especially,
0: and 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 especially areas. in the outer suburbs and the rural areas.
4: Oh, definitely, definitely. And you know, there's a lot of residents that lost you know places to train, but mostly it was a lot of resources a lot of people went to these hospitals um because they didn't need big academic centers but those little hospitals don't exist anymore
0: no and i live in an area where there's a big hospital uh in fairfax county i live in the neighboring county which has gobbled up all the area hospitals and they say they need to do this in order to survive i don't know whether that's true or not but uh but you're quite right and then yep, yeah, go ahead
4: I'm sorry, just a lot of the, because of a lot of the legislation that came through Obamacare made it so that these larger hospital systems were able to eat up these smaller hospitals. They couldn't sustain. A lot of these smaller hospitals are also owned by physicians, which are now via every, almost. They're every now state.
0: prohibited in many instances from owning hospitals. Yes, we can't do that. So we can't make money. And, and, and why? Why do we care? Why do we care? a damn who owns the hospitals? Well, because
4: physicians tend to make a little bit better. Um, uh, no, no, no. Labor. I
0: mean, why is it the government, if physicians want to open a hospital, who the hell cares? Uh, we've been told we can't. I do no, know. I understand capable. this, but that's why you have limited beds. And that's why you have these certif- certification of a need laws, these con laws, mm-hmm. where, the, where the states want all this power. And then when they have it, then they, there's a pandemic. Then they keep pointing to the federal government.
4: Well, there were a lot of hospitals in New York that closed down, and they had ICU beds.
0: All right, you take care. Thank you for your call. Let's continue. Eric, Bend, Oregon, the great KBND. Go. Hey, Mark, you're
6: doing a great job, and uh, kudos to the doctor you just had there from Texas. I'm a physician here in Oregon, yeah. And I will, I will leapfrog right off of what she said. That hospital consolidation. The big hospitals, if they kept the small ones open, turned them all into basically first aid stations. And in addition, almost all the hospitals basically kicked out and forced out their usual medical staff, their community physicians, and hired hospitalists, because the hospitalists theoretically were more efficient, could see more patients, maybe were a little bit quicker. And all of a sudden, we have all those same hospital systems Sending out emails to us now. Please, please sign up. We need extra physicians. We'll let you in on an emergency basis. We'll give you all those privileges back that we wrestled away from you a decade ago. Please, we're short staffed. Well, what the heck did they think was going to happen?
0: All right, sir. I appreciate your call. You're learning a lot, aren't you? I am. Mike, Independence, Missouri, the great KCMO. Go. You're on, brother. Right. Yes, sir. Mark. Yes, sir, Um, Mike.
6: Yeah, I was, uh, my wife works at a hospital. She had the first death in this area about 12 days ago, today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Within a day or so, across the state line here in Independence, Missouri, this mayor shut everything down. They closed all the schools, sent the kids with their grandparents, the grade schoolers, the other kids, junior high and high school. I don't know about running the streets. anything could happen to them. And to me, that's total insanity, it is all that you said about it. I, I felt the same way. I was all about that, and let's protect those. I would argue about that. I got on local radio and argued about that and, that, and I was ignorant, even though I've followed this since December. I've looked at studies. I know what's going on, and these people. My whole point was, this is a media panic. and I,
0: I don't know. The media is not helping. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of weird forces at play here. Uh, the media has been disgraceful in these press conferences with the president of the United States, and there are certain individuals in the media, clearly, who are not really focused on the evidence, who are not really productive, not really passing the news on, and they're pushing these hyperbolic agendas. But I, I, look, my, my argument now is <clears throat> we've got to get the economy going. I'm agreeing 100 percent with the president. As a matter of fact, no brag, just fact. I've been talking about this for over a week. We've got to get the economy going. You don't abandon the science. You use the science. What's the science telling you? It's telling you not everybody is going to be uh, severely affected by this. Okay, well, who is? Well, this group and this group and this area and that area. Well, hit that group and hit that group and hit that area and hit that area. Does that mean the virus might squeeze out in the other areas? Of course it does. But you don't kill the patient, that is the economy, in order to deal with this in a rational way. I'll be right back.
1: Mud, Levin.
0: May I make a recommendation to the newsrooms across the nation on television that that have a very active graphics department? Well, you're putting the scores up there for this virus. Why don't you put the scores up there for cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, murder, car accidents? I know they're not exactly the same thing. But you're providing no context whatsoever when you do that. Well, it's from the CDC. I don't care who it's from. I'm looking at numbers, 600 people dead from this virus. That's a lot. It's awful. That comes to a little over 13 per state. Now, I know that's going to grow. Don't get me wrong. But there's no context provided whatsoever. Mark, are you saying it's not a pandemic? I never said any such thing. I'm saying, and, and and why is that the resort when somebody brings up this stuff, a rational point? Stop playing games with ratings and hits. I'm sick of it. This thing is bad enough Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel All the people at our hospitals, doctors, nurses, support staff, thank you very much The scientists and labs and others who are working on therapies and the vaccines Thank you The truckers and everybody else in between We love you See you right here tomorrow Be safe God bless you